You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Nehemiah 4, 7-22. And after we read each of these scripture readings, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Out of reverence for it being God's word, please respond by saying, thanks be to God. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is in John 15, John 15, 13 to 21. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I, no longer do I call you servants, for the ser- servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, and the world would love you as it own, as its own, if you were of the world, the world, world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they per- persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you sent your son, you sent his spirit, and you've given us your word. Father, thank you for putting us in the world at this time, in this place, to live during these days. Thank you for this assignment from you to build here, to fight here. So, Father, pour out the spirit of your risen son upon us now so that we might hear these words, so that these words may be life to us, so that they might equip us to know how to build and fight here 
faithfully. We pray for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be here uh, with you. I bring you greetings from the saints in Moscow. It's, uh, it's wonderful to come and worship here with you in Denver at Trinity Church. And, um, and you know, right away, it's like family. So thank you uh, for the invitation from the elders in particular. And, um, and it's, it's good to be here with you. Whenever God's people truly give themselves to obedience in building the kingdom of God... Satan and his servants always take notice. Whenever God's people give themselves to obedience in building the kingdom of God, Satan and his servants always take notice and conflict inevitably arises. We have to expect this. If we will be faithful servants of Jesus, if we will be faithful uh, servants of God, We have to expect this conflict, we have to prepare for this conflict, and we have to learn how to keep building even in the midst of this conflict. This uh, this text in Nehemiah really isn't a unique situation. There are unique details to this text. There are unique elements of this particular moment in history where uh, the Jews have returned from exile and are beginning to rebuild the city walls and reestablish worship in Jerusalem. But, But the basic dynamics of this moment really aren't unique. This is actually how it always is. Only we can't always see it. Sometimes the the external factors, the external details are such that we think it's a different kind of setup, but it's not really. It's always like this. We, We are always building in the midst of rubble, and there are always threats. In fact, it's actually the kindness of God that shows us the threats, uh, it's, I think it's, as we're going to see here this morning, it's actually really dangerous to think, hey, we're just building and no one's going to stop us. It's actually the worst kind of situation to build in. You say, well, how could that be bad? <laughs> that seems like a good situation to build in. That's not what God thinks. God, uh, from, from the beginning, actually wanted his people to learn how to build and fight. So let's walk through this text just briefly, the, the, the Nehemiah 4 text that was just read. I just want to hit a few of the details, and then we're, we're going to consider this theme more broadly, more generically. But just, just so you caught the details there, a, a conspiracy rose as Nehemiah and, and, the, and the people are, are re- beginning work to rebuild the wall. A conspiracy arose to fight and frustrate the work of Nehemiah in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. This is in, at, at the beginning of, of the reading from verses 7 to 9. And so it says that when they heard there was a conspiracy, they prayed and they set a watch. They prayed and they set a watch. They did both of those things. They prayed and they set a watch. That's verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Then you also have Nehemiah personally overseeing um, the, the, the establishment of this guarding work. He appoints particular guards for families in particular places along the wall He encourages them to remember the Lord and then fight, if necessary, for their families. That's in verses 13 and 14. So he sets people, he calls them back behind the wall so they're, they're not as exposed. He sets particular people as guards according to their families with swords and spears and bows. That's verse 13. And then he encourages them. He encourages them. He says, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. That's verse 14. Now, it turns out in this particular instance that this planning, just what, you've, what we've just covered right now, that prayer and the establishment of a, of a guard and an encouragement uh, to the families, to the men to be ready to, to fight and defend their families, that's enough to pretty much discourage the threat. 
This is enough to frustrate the plans of their enemies. And so, because of that, Nehemiah is able to, they're able to get back to the work. But they still do so with caution, assuming that these people that began this conspiracy, began this, this threat, or it, it may, they, they could pop right back up. They could surprise them. So every worker is given a sword at his side while he works. And there are, is also a trumpeter at the ready to sound the alarm. We see this in verses 15 through 18. And the plan was that if they heard the trumpet blow, that everyone was then to run to defend that portion of the wall where the trumpet blew. So half the men held spears at the ready while they worked, and they determined to have everyone sleep inside the city in order to protect them with the confidence that God would fight for them. Notice that the whole text sort of opens and closes, is sort of bookended with this idea of we prayed and we set a watch, and then we planned, we prepared, we, we established a protocol, we, and, and, and we were encouraged and prepared to fight, but then it, it closes with this encouragement and this assurance, God shall fight for us. Verse 20. That's the, that's the text in a nutshell. But as I say, this is actually not different than any time. There are particulars to this moment, particular physical circumstances, but this is what it's like always and everywhere in this world. In fact, even in the beginning, in the very beginning, in Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created everything, he created Adam and Eve, he created the first man and the woman, and he gave them a job of building, didn't he? He gave them a task of building. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over all the animals, make this world more beautiful, more productive. That was, that was the, the opening commission, the dominion mandate given to mankind. You see what I've begun, God said? Take it, make it better. In fact, in chapter two, when he's giving Adam the job, he says, start here in the garden, but he says, you'll notice there's a river flowing out of the garden and it splits into four heads. And down one river, there's precious stones like gold and bedulum stones. And then down this other river is Ethiopia and down this other river is Assyria and down, I'm not even gonna tell you what's down the other river. God, God establishes Adam's job beginning at the garden, but then basically gives him a map and says, you know, the implication is you're going to want to go down those rivers. You're going to want to go exploring. You're going to want to, you're going to need some of those stones to work with. You're going to build things with those precious stones. So in the beginning, God gives the assignment to Adam and Eve to build build garden cities and fill the world with them. However, God apparently determined that the best kind of building would only happen in the context of fighting. How do we know that? Because it doesn't then end, Genesis 2 doesn't end, and then they lived happily ever the end. It kind of does, but then chapter 3 starts. Right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other creatures that God had made. Right? He's just given them a job to build and immediately allows an enemy. God determined that in a perfect world, they still needed to fight while they built. There was a perfect man and a perfect woman in a perfect marriage in a perfect world under perfect conditions and God allowed a talking dragon into it. Apparently, that's what Adam and Eve needed. And if they had been faithful, if Adam had been faithful, he would have fought the dragon, fought the serpent, defended his wife, obeyed the commands of God and kept on building. And apparently, he needed that experience to build well. He needed that. He failed, sin entered the world. 
But many Christians do not understand that God designed the world, created the world such that building and fighting always go together. Always. Even in a perfect world. Even in a perfect world, God said, I want you to build this world out. I got it started. I got a garden here. See how I organized everything and made it beautiful and fruitful? Take that. Do it to the world. And by the way, here's a dragon. You need that too in order to build this right. This was the case before sin entered the world and the entrance of sin into the world only underlines the point. It's like if you didn't get it in Genesis 3, all right, here, it's everywhere now. Build like this. Build here. Of course, after Adam and Eve sinned, God declared war on sin in the garden. Open war. Immediately following the fall, you know this verse, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus, God declared war on sin, told Adam and Eve, your descendants are going to be part of this war and, and all of human history has been about that war against sin. Of course, Jesus is that offspring of the woman. He's the seed of the woman. And his death and resurrection has dealt the decisive blow to the head of the serpent. But Jesus was very clear. He told his disciples that following him would mean being hated, persecuted, and conflict. So we heard this in the New Testament reading we just heard a couple minutes ago. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus has delivered the decisive blow. He's given the head wound to the serpent. The serpent is going down. He's been cast out of heaven. He's no longer an accuser of the brethren. But Jesus says, because I've chosen you to follow me, the world will hate you. The conflict continues, and and it's right here at the front end. You want to be a Christian, the world's going to hate you. You want to be a Christian, there's going to be conflict. You want to be a Christian, you want to build the kingdom, they're going to come for you. So there's this base level hatred that the world has for all followers of Jesus. Jesus warned us, he told us, this is the deal. This is part of the cross you take up when you follow him. If any man will come after me, Jesus said, take up your cross. Take up your cross. You will be hated. You will be, you know, a cross, of course, is a, is, is a method of, of execution for the worst kind of criminals. That's what the world's going to think of you. You're a criminal. You're a bigot. You're a white supremacist, whatever. They, they will call you names. They will hate you. And they will consider you a criminal. Worthy of a criminal's death, take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. So there's this base level hatred that the world has for all followers of Jesus. But the devil is particularly infuriated when God's people are actively involved in building communities and cultures of obedience. Jesus showed up, and you might remember this in the Gospels, Jesus shows up to do something decisive and all of a sudden demons come out of everywhere. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's demons showing up because they know their kingdom is under attack. And so it is when God's people are actively involved in building communities and cultures of obedience, the devil shows up. When something significant is going down, the devil shows up. We know this because he showed up at the the beginning. Adam and Eve were about to get going on that world-building project And there was this one assignment particularly, stay away, don't eat that, the fruit of that tree. Obey me here, God said. And and the implication was, my blessing will be on everything else you do. And the devil said, ah, there it is. And showed up right on time. Or even at the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is baptized. The spirit descends as a dove. The Godfather says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is getting commissioned. He's about to go on the warpath. And what happens? 
right on schedule, the devil shows up to tempt him in the wilderness. Because when the work's about to begin, the devil shows up. When the work's about to begin, the devil shows up. Now, Jesus said that he was building his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Which is a really interesting picture if you think about it. It doesn't say that the gates of the church won't be conquered by hell. Right? Gates are the border of a city or of a kingdom, right? It says that the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Which means that Jesus built his church at the gates of Hades. You're like, Jesus, really, was that a good idea? How about a little safe distance? You know, then we can, you know, beat them out in the field. Jesus said, no. I'm building my church here at the gates of Hades. It means the church is laying siege to hell. We're laying siege to Hades. It's not the other way around. Sometimes Christians get this backwards, and they think the church is this little island you know, like, you know, like at the end of the Lord of the Rings, you know, right before the, 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 uh, the ring gets destroyed. And, and you, see, you see that particularly in the, in the movie version where they're just, you know, this tiny little island of, of brave and courageous soldiers just surrounded by the orcs and, and bad guys. And frequently Christians think, yeah, that's pretty much how it is. But that's not actually what Jesus said. Jesus said that the gates of Hades won't prevail. We're laying siege to the gates of Hades we're laying siege to the kingdom of darkness. And, and this, in some ways, is God's kindness because it's hard to miss then. Or at least it should be. Just point your gun that way. <laughs> point your spear that way. Shoot, you'll hit it. In many respects. But we ought to, you know, on the flip side, if there are no counterattacks, if a church is just going along merrily, if your family's just going along merrily and there are no counterattacks, you should seriously ask whether your guns are pointing in the right direction. Why are you not under attack? The biblical answer is that those Christians who are not under attack are not a threat. Why would the devil bother with you? You're not doing anything. You're not threatening anything of his. The devil shows up when something serious is about to go down. And so by the same token... Wherever we are warned about the devil attacking is probably one of those places where Jesus wants us to build and fight in particular. So by the same token, the things that the devil is most concerned about, the places where the devil likes to attack, and wherever scripture says, watch out here, the devil likes to get in here. He's threatened here. We ought to be thinking to ourselves, okay, that's where we build and fight. That's where we take our stand. That's where we man the walls. It's interesting that there really are not that many texts in the New Testament that say the devil likes to get you here. Like explicitly, watch out for this because Satan will attack you here. But there are a few. And so what I want to do for the rest of the time here this morning is just walk through some of those texts where the New Testament explicitly says Satan attacks here. Because that's where then we want to build and fight. That's where Satan is threatened the most. And that's where we've got to hold our ground. We build fundamentally through obedience. So how do I build the kingdom? Obey Jesus. In our lesson this morning, if you, if you love me, obey my commands. Right? This, this is how, how are we his friends? We do what he says. We do what he commands. We build what he says to build by obedience. Okay, so we build by obedience, and so we fight for obedience. That's what we're fighting for. We're fighting to obey. We're fighting to obey. We fight in order to keep obeying. And and so there are relatively few explicit warnings in Scripture about where the devil likes to attack, and so we should pay careful attention when, when it does. So here's one of them, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Do not give a place to the devil. In your anger, do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not give a place to the devil. Elsewhere, it says that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. That's James 1.20. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. When your children disobey, anger does not work the righteousness of God. When your husband is late or forgets something very important to you, the wrath of his wife does not work the righteousness of God. But you say, but it's so important. It's so important. I just really want them to understand that when they disobey God, it's, it's, it's terrible. And so I just kind of let them have it. And it can feel so righteous. My husband just doesn't understand. Like, that was the most important thing to me. I, I'm just going to let him have it because it's for our marriage. He needs to know. And so, and we defend it with sort of pieties and holiness. Well, you know, it says in your anger, do not sin. I was, I was trying not to sin. And, and very easily, very quickly, we spin it as a kind of righteous anger. Godly anger. Or maybe it's against the enemies of God, plotting and lying and slandering and attacking, right? The, the, the latest, whatever, liberal thing that's so discouraging or frustrating, and it can be tempting to fight fire with fire. But conservative rage does not work the righteousness of God. They're so wrong. They're doing so many bad things. They're hurting so many people. It does not work the righteousness of God to lose your temper. Now, this doesn't mean we aren't supposed to fight. But it does mean that we are called to fight back using the weapons that God gives us, which are truth and blessing. We fight with truth and blessing. Bitterness, resentment, and wrath leave gaping holes in the line for the devil. Bitterness, resentment, and wrath leave gaping holes in the line for the devil. And it doesn't matter if you're doing it in the name of some good thing. Whatever it might be. Bitterness, resentment, and wrath leaves room for the devil. What's the difference between godly anger and ungodly anger? How do you know the difference between godly anger and ungodly anger? Godly anger drives you to joyful obedience. That's how you know. Godly anger drives you to obey more. You're not like teetering on the edge. That's not godly anger. About to blow. Holding it in, steaming. No, that's not godly anger, sorry. Already over the line. Godly anger turns immediately to obedience, immediately to holiness, immediately to joy to do the right thing. That's godly anger. Ungodly anger is full of snarling and seething and then occasionally blows up. So do you want to build and fight? The word of God says that the devil attacks here. Station here. Put a trumpeter here. Defend the walls here. Do not let ungodly anger get a foothold in your heart. You know, what's hardest frequently is when someone really wrongs us. Like full-blown, clear wrongs us. And frequently when it's someone close to us, someone who is supposed to love us, someone who's supposed to protect us, like a dad or a mom or a grandfather or a grandmother or a brother or a sister. Are you bitter? Does it come back to you again and again what she said, what he said? how they weren't there, 
than they should have been. It's like a knife and it keeps coming back. That's called bitterness. It's called resentment. It's not making it better. It's not making you whole. And it's attack of the devil. And you're vulnerable there. So confess it. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Confess it now. Or do you have bad habits with your spouse or with your kids? You have a blow up, you have a bump, and you, you lose your temper, you say something you shouldn't, and then you just think, oh, it's not a big deal. They understand I had a long day at work. They know I was up a lot this last night with the baby or whatever, and they, they understand. They just, they, they just, they know. And you try to sweep it under the rug. You're leaving your doors unlocked. You're leaving your door wide open. You know, you're not building. You're certainly not fighting. You're vulnerable. Go to those whom you have wronged. Tell them, I was wrong when I lost my temper. I was wrong when I said that. Please forgive me. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down on unresolved sin. Fight here. Fight here. Do not let the devil in here. Confess your bitterness. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath with your spouse, with your children, your parents, anyone. The thing to remember too is that clean hearts, and this applies to all kinds of sin that you confess, not just to bitterness and wrath, but all kinds of sin that you confess, clean hearts are courageous hearts. Clean hearts are courageous hearts. Do you want to be bold in Christ? Do you want to be bold to stand up to the attacks of those who hate the gospel and hate the kingdom of light? Well, then you need a clean heart. Confess your sin. Get rid of it. Get rid of all the bitterness, all the resentment. Give it to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. The other thing that Jesus promises is that when we're forgiven and we have clean hearts, you can see clearly. Remember that one text where Jesus is talking about the hypocrisy of pointing out someone else's sin? You know, speck in your brother's eye, but you have a telephone pole in your own eye, right? Jesus says, first take out the telephone pole. First take the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly. He doesn't say that there's nothing ever to remove from your brother or sister's eye. He just says, make sure you, make sure you can see before you do eye surgery on people, right? Make sure you can see. But, and so what do you do? Get rid of your own sin. And we live in hard times, we live in difficult times, and, and we, what we do, don't need are a bunch of blind people on, 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 the, on the battlefield. We need people who can see. So confess your anger. Confess your bitterness. Confess your wrath. Give it to the Lord. Have a clean heart and a joyful heart. You can't fight without that clean heart, without that joy of the Lord. And if you are trying to fight with that wrath and with that rage and with that bitterness and with that resentment, you're not helping. You're not making it better. Whatever you voted for in the last elections, you're not making it better. You're just pouring gas on the fire. Here's another passage where the New Testament specifically warns us about the attacks of the devil. This is in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. He's, he's talking to husbands and wives in particular about their sexual relationship. And it says this in verse five, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, I'm just sort of hopscotching through the New Testament and saying, where does it say Satan or the devil? Where does it say, watch out, Satan likes to fight here, devil likes to attack here? Well, this is another one. One of the central ways the devil attacks our work in the kingdom is through sexual temptation and sin. And here, Paul says, right on the heels, in the last chapter, in chapter 6, a bunch of warnings about fornication, prostitutes, and other sexual sins. He says, basically, you need to guard the line here. A husband and wife need to be regularly intimate Do not deprive one another. Do not defraud one another, the word could be translated as. 
Do not steal from one another and do not leave one another open to the temptations of the devil. Satan tempts you here. Station a guard here. Have a sword and a spear here. Have a trumpeter here. Make sure, husbands and wives, you are pursuing one another sexually, regularly. Guard the line here. Honor the marriage bed. Delight in your spouse. Marriage is the foundation of the family. Marriage is the foundation of the family, and the family is the basic building block of society. We cannot build if we are not building families. And we cannot build families if we do not have marriages. And you cannot have a healthy, flourishing marriage if the husband and wife are not in warm, affectionate communion together. You know, one of the greatest blessings to children is growing up in a home where their parents are really into one another. It's, it's one of those things, I, I was blessed to grow up in a home where my, my mom and dad, they, they met in high, high school, they were high school sweethearts, and they've loved each other, been best friends, um, and I just, it was one of those unspoken things. They didn't really have to, like, explain anything to me. I've just known from jump that my mom and dad are really into one another. And if you're doing it right, sometimes it should be just a little bit gross. <laughs> Don't be inappropriate. But, you know, they should be kind of like, all right, come on. Right? And, but we, and, and it, it's, it's funny and it's fun and, and it's so important. And it's one, of those, it's one of those weird things where God gives this to you as this glorious gift and says, here, this is a gift. I want you to enjoy this. I want it, it's supposed to be fun, enjoyable, glorious, beautiful, and when you do this regularly, it's, it's building the kingdom. And, and, and yet, so many Christians disobey. Well, yeah, that was fun and all for the first year and everything, but then the kids started coming along, and I'm tired, and, and you know, I, I just, I can't do it. I mean, that's just too much. But do you want to build? The devil is attacking here. I don't think I need to explain to you how the devil is attacking here. This is, and this is, this is not, it's not been sort of some secret. Even in our country, in our culture, I mentioned this last night to the, to the guys um, when we were talking about some of these things, but there were, there were people in the 60s, you know, this, again, this is not new, but there were literally people in the 60s meeting together, talking about how to destroy the Christian foundations of America, like literally. Having meetings to talk about how to destroy the Christian foundations of America, and they identified openly, explicitly, that what they needed to destroy were Christian patriarchs. Christian men who took their responsibility as fathers and husbands seriously. They said, that's our target. We have to destroy them. And then what did they say? They said, how do we destroy them? Through sexual immorality. They said it openly. Prostitution, pornography, homosexuality, all of it. That's how we're going to destroy them. And 50 years later, they did it. They did it. And this has been the play you know, all, in all of history, but they openly said that this is, is actually, a, a, there's an article, if you're interested, I can, I can get it to you later, but um, by the sister of the, of the woman who founded the National Organization of Women, now, in OW. She was meeting with people in her apartment in the late 60s saying, this is what we will do. And, 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 but we didn't even need that because Paul told us, the word of God told us centuries ago that one of the places the devil likes to attack is in the marriage bed. Therefore, be intimate regularly. Be into one another regularly. Pursue one another regularly. Do not deprive one another. Do not defraud one another because Satan wants to get in here. The last one that I'm going to mention, the last place where that I'm going to look at this morning where 
the Bible explicitly says to watch out for Satan is probably illegal in several states to say out loud, even, maybe even in Colorado. And that's because it's directed particularly at women. In the course of giving instructions for the care of widows, Paul urges young widows to remarry so that they do not become idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. This is in 1 Timothy 5. Instead, Paul says they ought to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. 1 Timothy 5, verses 13 and 14. Paul says here in particular, watch out for the women, the younger women in particular, that they not be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And he said that even before Facebook existed. Instead, he says, make sure that they are marrying that they're bearing children, that they're managing their households so that you give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already strayed after Satan. In other words, women are powerful. Women are powerful. Now, of course, the world says that, but when they say that they are all about the power of women or empowering women, you basically need, as soon as you see what they start doing with that, it means just the opposite. When the world wants to empower women, it means they want to weaken women. But women really are powerful. At the very places where God gives women their power, the world frequently wants to suppress it. But the Bible teaches that women rule from their homes. The throne room of a woman is her home. From that throne, she rules. She bears God's image and she exerts authority and influence and power. In Titus, Paul actually calls the woman a house despot. It's in Titus 2.5. The older women are to teach the younger women to be house rulers, house despots. And, and women rule in the world through their hospitality, through cultivating beauty, and through every kind of fruitfulness. And so this goes even for a single woman. If you have a family, here's your assignment. If you don't have a family yet, build a home. Make a home. Cultivate beauty. Cultivate hospitality. Cultivate fruitfulness and beauty in every way you can. That's how you rule. And this is why Satan prowls here. He wants women to give away their power. He wants women to give away their authority through being idle, being gossips, being busybodies, so that they are not building powerful homes and families and communities. Because then the kingdom of darkness would be under threat. If women knew that their power was there, that their power was in the support of their husbands, in, the, in bearing children, in being fruitful, in show, showing hospitality. If women knew that that was their power, we would be, the, the kingdom of darkness would be in trouble. Years ago when my, uh, my wife was uh, making dinner one evening and, uh, and there was a, a phone call, it was, a, it was like a survey call and, and I was sitting in the living room and she's banging around doing pots and pans, making dinner and kids are doing stuff, the kids were little at the time and I'm just trying to read her something and I hear her on the phone, she does a survey and then she gets to the end where they do like the demographic things, you know, you know how old are you and income level or whatever and she gets to, there's a, all of a sudden I hear her say, homemaker. She says, homemaker. Homemaker. She like just had to keep repeating. Finally she says, I'm a wife and a mother. And then she gets off the phone a couple of minutes later. And I'm, you know, she's calling people for dinner. We get in there and she said, that poor girl had never heard of a homemaker before. Never heard of a homemaker. Some 19-year-old girl doing a survey had never heard of the most glorious feminine calling that exists. You know, it's funny. 
and sad. You've never heard of the thing, the most glorious thing a woman can do, make a home, make a place of rest, make a place of comfort, make a place of joy, make a place where people are fed, make a piece, place where people are loved, where human beings are made. You've never heard of the most potent, powerful thing that a woman can do. So sad. The Bible teaches, of course, that a man is responsible for his household, but the Bible also says the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Proverbs 14.1. That's power. And that's why Satan attacks there, telling you you're not doing anything important folding all those clothes, changing all those diapers, doing all those dishes, setting the table. Is this really important? Yes, you're making people. You're making people who will live forever. You're making people who will influence families and nations for generations. What do you mean, is this important? You're the kind of person that can make a person inside of you. That's power, that's potency. Station your guards there. Let your daughters grow up loving that. I want to be a wife and a mom. There's nothing embarrassing about that. I want to be a wife and a mom. I want to make a home. I want to have a home that welcomes strangers. I want to have a home that feeds the hungry and clothes the naked. I want to take over the world with the gospel because God made me a woman. And that's powerful. It's striking that Nehemiah and the people prayed and set watch. They prepared and they trusted in the fact that God would fight for them. So it's never either or in all these things. As you fight sinful wrath, as you fight for godly biblical intimacy in your marriage, as you fight women particularly to make homes of fruitfulness and glory, it's always praying and obeying fighting and trusting that God will fight for you. It's always both and. So pray and plan, rest in the Lord, and keep your powder dry. Our job is to obey. God is the one who blesses. And remember that the good works we do were prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. It's glorious. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those are the good works you're called to. They're ones God already planned for you. And if God planned them for you, then they're good works. When when God calls you to the next thing, obedience is potent because he planned for you to walk in it. And he doesn't give his people silly jobs. He doesn't give his people impotent things to do. He gives them powerful things to do. And so the next thing that you do, the obedience you're called to, serving your wife, serving your husband, going to work, doing your schoolwork, confessing your sin, asking for forgiveness. It's potent because God planned it for you to walk in. Our situation here and now is a lot like the Jews was. Remember in verse 10, it said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is weak and there is so much rubble. We're not able to build the wall, the Jews said. The church is a mess. Our families are weak. Our nation is full of corruption. The world around us seems so volatile. Right? They said it 10 times, it says in the text. They're like, no, you don't get it. It's bad. There's so much trash here. There's so much junk here. There's so much rubble here. We are so tired. It's a mess. They said it 10 times. Welcome to the club. We were born for this. The mess only tells us what we're for. It's not an accident that we were born now. Could have been born 100 years ago, could have been born 100 years in the future. God elected you for now, chose you for now, said, he goes here, she goes here, this family goes here, this church goes here, this business goes here. It tells us what we're for. You have been assigned to this place on the wall. And that should be such a freeing thing. Jesus assigned me here. He's the captain. He assigned us here. We've been assigned this place on the wall. Adam and Eve, they had the dragon. Jesus needed to face Satan. And we have these. Welcome to the club. And do not miss the fact that we have a greater than Nehemiah in our midst. 
we have greater than Nehemiah. We have Jesus, right? We have, we have the Son of God who's come, lived, died, and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's the one building this. Not just a mere Nehemiah. Not just human pastors and deacons and elders and frail people like us. Jesus is building this kingdom. And he cannot fail. He is the chief cornerstone. And he cannot be budged. He cannot be moved. It's been set. It's going. It's going up. There's nothing they can do to stop it. That's why they're so mad. That's why they're so upset. That's why they're so riled up. Jesus is risen from the dead. The chief cornerstone has been laid. He cannot be removed. He cannot be removed because he died and rose again and he cannot be put back in the grave. They can't get to him. He's at the Father's right hand forever until all of his enemies submit. Our sins have been removed like that too. Your sins have been removed like that. And therefore, you cannot be afraid. Have you confessed your sins? You're clean. They can no more put your sins back on you than they can put Jesus back in the grave. Remember that scene in Pilgrim's Progress? This is a glorious scene. He comes with this burden on his back. And as he comes up, there's a cross. And as the shadow of the cross falls upon him, the burden rolls off his back and it rolls down the hill into a grave never to be seen again. Your sins are gone. You've confessed them. You're clean. Jesus lives in you. And now you are not afraid of anything. What do they have on you? What are they going to bring up sins from the past? Stuff you looked at, stuff you did? And Jesus died for it all. And now you're clean. We will not have the courage we need to build and fight unless we are clean. But if you are clean, then there's nothing they can do about it. Is that, the, the, the world's economy works this way. It works entirely on manipulation and accusation. I've got something on you, so you better not cross me. And Christians have gotten into that. They play according to the rules. I don't, yeah, I don't want them to bring up who I voted for. I don't want them to bring up my, my internet search history. I don't want them to bring up whatever happened in the past. I don't, okay. So long as you have guilt, they've got dirt on you, and you are vulnerable. But if you have confessed your sins, then you are clean and they have nothing on you. And you stand there and smile and say, bring it. Jesus was crucified for all my sins and I'm clean. I'm not afraid of you. And if you kill me, I'm gonna rise up from the dead again. I'm not afraid. Your sins have been removed. We are not afraid. Christ is risen. We will be raised up with him. This is his kingdom. This is his building project. And so at these places, stand and fight. At these places, stand and fight here because Jesus is the captain and he's the one who will get it done. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you for Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, the one who's building the kingdom in our midst. Father, I pray specifically for Trinity Church here in Denver. It's not an accident, Father, that you've put them here, right downtown, right next to a Supreme Court building, right next to a state capitol building. Father, if they only knew we were here, they would be panicking. So, Father, we thank you that you've planted them here. Pray your blessing on them, and I pray, Father, that in these particular places... You would give them peace, you would give them joy, you would give them courage, you give them love. And Father, would you bless them? For we ask it in Jesus' name, and amen.